Welcome to the Faith FX Podcast. I'm Bernie Vandewall. I'm Mark Buchanan. And this is where faith and life meet. My new position has actually taken me back to my hometown. Uh, and uh, one of the things I've noticed is, I guess I lived there a long time, uh, is I can't go anywhere without bumping into somebody I know. Even though you've been gone for how long from Regina? 16 years. 16, and still you go and you... Oh, yeah. I. So so 16 years still, and you still walk down the road. Yeah, And, yeah. and we're not talking just your neighborhood, but you're going... No, I was out in our major park uh, for a walk with Colleen. And and so this is actually going to be invert. You know what, I, you know what I'm thankful for? And, and what I kind of miss is anonymity. Right. Just being able to go for a walk... Not be recognized. Nobody sort of bugs you. I mean, I'm an extrovert, so that sounds really weird. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I catch myself saying, I can't go anywhere. It's so funny, Bernard, because a lot of people just, their whole dream is to become famous, to become right. recognizable. And you're saying that as you sort of, you know, emerge back into this, yeah. this Regina fame, that it's like, uh, you know, I didn't want to go for a walk with my wife and- I'd have to yeah, not have to stop, stop two or three and... times to, with different groups. Yeah, and I thought, man, I I was really th- you know those, those so those steps in between meetings. I'm really kind of I'm really kind of uh, I'm really kind of thankful for. Uh, actually, that sets us up really well for our guest today because one of the things that our guest is going to talk about from his own life and practice, but also out of one of the books he's written, is. Um, living in thankfulness. And he says, actually, the, the more we practice a simple act of saying thank you for things like walking and and maybe anonymity, anonymity yeah. and open-faced turkey sandwiches, smothered uh, in gravy. Okay, just... Okay, you know, sorry. That, 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 that actually changes the way we see the world around us. Mm. And it lifts us out of yeah. sometimes our our depression or anxiety or whatnot. So let's get into that. We have as our guest today, Ken Shigematsu. Well, welcome back to Faith Effects, Bernie Vandewall and myself, Mark Buchanan. And today's guest is a, a very dear friend f- uh, for both Bernie and, and myself, uh, Ken Shigematsu. Ken has been for a long, long time, actually since 1996, has been senior pastor of a, a very influential and um, a, a very diverse church in the Vancouver, near near downtown Vancouver, called Tenth Church. And uh, probably we'll hear a little bit of Ken's story about the history of him coming there but uh, I've appreciated Tenth Church in terms of its diversity, in terms of its um, presence within the city, and pr- very much appreciated Ken as a as a friend and as a communicator and as a as a public theologian, a good thinker. Uh, Ken has um, a wide wide reach, and we're going to be talking about some of his ministry beyond the pastoral work that he does, including the writing he does, the speaking he does. Uh, married to Sakiko is uh, one son, Joey, and a dog. What's your dog's name, Ken? Sasha. Sasha. I should have known that. Golden yeah, kind of like part of the family. 
very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Candace received the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Award back in 2013. That's given to Canadians to recognize outstanding contributions that they've made to the country. He's also received the World Vision Ken McMillan Hero for Children Award. And uh, that uh, to really reflect the kind of breadth and the kind of depth and the kind of heart this man has. So, Ken, we're so grateful that you have um, taken time on your sabbatical. You're on a sabbatical right now to be with Bernie and I on Faith Effects. So thank you very much for uh, being part of this today. Yeah, you bet, Mark. It's a pleasure to talk to you and Bernie. Yeah, thanks. Well, just a bit of a, a give us a, um, a you know, some highlights of, of your sabbatical that you've been on. Sure. You mentioned that uh, I, I came to 10th back in 96, and uh, the church had cycled through 20 pastors in 20 years prior to my coming. And so as I was being hired, I didn't negotiate for any particular salary package, but I did ask if I could have some time off periodically to reflect, uh, to study, to recreate, to connect deeply with the most important people in my life and God. And so I'm on one of these mini sabbaticals right now. And uh, some of the highlights have been the fact that it feels like time has slowed down somewhat. Sometimes my life feels like one of those um, old movies where a gust of wind comes on a calendar and the, the pages start uh, flipping yeah. one after the other. And when I'm on a sabbatical, it just feels like time slows down in a good way. I, I live in BC and, and Mark, you're from here, so you you know the terrain here. And so one of the, the highlights has been um, spending time in the forest or by the river with our 11-year-old son, Joey, the other day we went fishing up in Lynn Canyon in North Vancouver and caught some little salmon minnows, just kind of catch and release. So, yeah, that was a great experience. Oh, that sounds good. Cool. A sabbatical. That's that's a nice thing to negotiate. Um, I'm, I just dream of that. I think, I think I'm actually out, out of the sabbatical stream now. But um, you, you speak uh, and you write about the contemplative life. Um, about stillness, about silence, about attentiveness. Um, here's the question. Can the average person who doesn't get a sabbatical uh, do those kinds of things or always just uh, just the uh, the purview of, of those who uh, were uh, upfront negotiators like yourself, Ken? Absolutely. It's something that everyone can do. And in fact, this may sound somewhat counterintuitive, but you know, the, the busier a person is, the more pressure they feel. Uh, the more these practices like silence and and meditation will be life-giving. So I may engage in some silent prayerful meditation for 15 or 20 minutes in the morning, but if I am facing down what I know is going to be a really stressful day, maybe I'm facing a crucial conversation, maybe I'm going to engage in an interaction that will probably spark conflict, I feel like I need to spend maybe 40 minutes or 50 or 60 minutes in, in silence and prayerful meditation to get ready for my day. And so ironically, the busier and more harried I feel my life is becoming, the more I need the silence and stillness from which to receive God's perspective, wisdom, and energy to, to face today. Ken, you're a best-selling author and your first book, God in My Everything, which I, I love that book. But you explore the idea of a rule of life. And I think what you were just talking about with busy people, uh, the stress that you carry in your day job and, and most of us carry, 
that it heightens the urgency and necessity of practices that slow us down, quiet us down, clear our minds. Your book, uh, God and My Everything, is very much focused on building those kind of practices into a rhythm. Can you, can you, and, and at the heart of that book is, is this concept, ancient uh, monastic practice of a rule of life. Can you tell us a bit more what is a rule of life and how do you see that integrated with uh, for ordinary f- folks? So when I was um, in my 20s, I was working in the corporate world in, in Tokyo, Japan, and I was what they called a 7-Eleven man. Mm. Uh, it didn't mean that I was actually working at 7-Eleven or drinking a lot of Slurpees, but it meant that my workday went from 7 a.m. till about 11 p.m. at night. So it was a really crazy time in my life. And when I became a pastor here in Vancouver, I thought, things will probably settle down for me. And uh, that assumption was naive because I was keeping pretty much the same hours or almost the same hours. And then right around that time when I just felt like I was constantly treading water, my mentor, Leighton Ford, who was a Christian Mm -hmm. leader originally from Chatham, Ontario, the brother-in-law to the late Billy Graham, invited me to join him on a pilgrimage to the holy places of Ireland. And so we visited some of the ancient monasteries and from the monks learned about this way of life that they describe as as you mentioned, a rule of life that enabled them to experience God as alive and real, not just when they were praying in a chapel, but when they were working out in the fields, when they were studying in the library, when they were preparing a meal in the kitchen. And I was hungry to experience God as alive and real in every part of my life. And so I returned to Vancouver and began to practice some of the simple habits that I learned from the monks that they describe as a rule of life. Uh, This included Sabbath and time for silence. It included play and physical exercise and recreation and time with friends. And and so this, this rule of life really changed my life. I noticed that even secular people talk about this concept, not using the monastic term rule of life, but they talk about organizing your life so that you have joy and meaning and connection. Um, a, f- a follow-up question to the rule of life. Could you describe a, a couple of ways you've incorporated into your non-sabbatical life? So when you go back and you've got all the pressures of, of work and the various demands of of uh, your travel, et cetera, how, how you would incorporate a, a couple of practices so that they become a rhythm rather than just something you're trying to cram in? So... I'm a very easily distracted kind of person. And so at any given time, I can feel like there are 123 monkeys jumping around in my head. And so at some point in the morning, as I did this morning, I'll simply take some time to sit. And I'm just, I just sat down just now and I'll breathe deeply. Breathing in deeply through my nose and then breathing out slowly through my nose. Breathing in deeply, and then breathing out slowly. And then I'll start to wonder how much time has gone by. And so I'll reach for my phone, not to check my messages, but to open up this free app called Centering Prayer. And I set the timer to maybe 20 minutes, so I'm not thinking about the time. I hit begin. And a chime goes off as though I were in a monastery being summoned to pray. 
Continue breathing deeply in through my nose, slowly out through my nose. Breathing in, breathing out. And then I'll start to think of all the things I ought to be doing my to-do list. And so I'll reach for my Bible and I will select a passage that will help me focus on God. And so it might be from, say, Psalm 46. So every time my mind wanders, I'll simply repeat the phrase as a prayer, an affirmation. Be still and know that I am God. Breathing in deeply. Exhale. Distracted yet again, shifting on my chair. Be still and know that I am God. And so this simple practice of silence and taking some time to prayerfully meditate on Scripture really powerfully shapes my life. The bell will sound. And when I'm done, I, I almost always feel just a bit more relaxed and throughout the day a bit more focused and, and, and conscious of Jesus. And this is something uh, that I do pretty much every day. Sometimes I'll meditate for a shorter period of time and other times, as I mentioned, slightly longer. But this, this very simple practice helps me to become more aware of the God who is always with me. Ken, what I loved what you just did is I entered into that with mm -hmm. you. you. You slowed it down. You, in real time, walked us through that practice. You didn't just describe it, but you you did it. And I actually felt my, my, my breathing slow down. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it... Uh, Ken, uh, your second in your more recent book, and it's doing really well too, uh, I hear, is uh, The Survival Guide for the Soul. Um, in relation to what we were just talking about, do you expand on this idea? Do you take a different track? Uh, where does this book lead us? Yeah, so the meditation exercise that I, I, I just went through uh, is actually from Survival Guide for the Soul, or it's described there. So if people want to experiment with this silent purple meditation, there is a chapter in that book on, on this on this topic. But I've also written about how a simple practice like meditation can also help people overcome feelings of anxiety and depression. So Kelly McGonigal is a researcher and a psychologist who teaches at Stanford. And she points out that if a person meditates for between 15 to 20 minutes over four to six weeks, and then we were to do a brain scan on them. The scan would show that the neural networks in that person's brain associated with feeling anxiety and depression have actually shrunk. And, and uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel, who is a respected professor of psychiatry at UCLA, not a Christian as far as I know, points out that for people experiencing anxiety and depression, obviously medication can sometimes really help. I believe that that can be God's expression of common grace. So I'm all for medication in the right place at the right time. But according to Professor Siegel, in some cases, meditation and a little bit of exercise can be even more effective than medication. Uh, but most important, uh, prayerful meditation can help us connect more deeply with God. God is all around us, and prayerful meditation helps us to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the God who is always with us. In your book, Survival Guide for the Soul, this is your most recent book, you also uh, talk about an ancient practice 
of examine. And I find that very helpful in terms of um, this connection with God that you're describing. Can, can, you, can you tell us a bit more about what that is and, and then how you engage with that? Sure. So as I mentioned in the mornings, I like to spend some time in prayerful meditation. In the evening, I open up another free app called Reimagining the Examine. I'll click on it and uh, it'll play a little bit of music. And then it introduces me. Uh, I just turned it on and, and it, it sounds like falling rain, which is perfect for Vancouver mm. as it rains a lot here, as yep. you know. And uh, this ancient prayer, 500-year-old prayer introduced by St. Ignatius of Loyola, invites us to look back over our day or over the last 24 or 36 hours or so and identify two or three things that felt like gifts from God. And so if I were to do that right on the spot, I would thank God for the beautiful morning swim I had in an outdoor pool in Kitsilano, Vancouver. It's about 140 meters long, so I... I Love to begin the day with a swim. Had a delicious meal with our family last night. So these are pretty simple things. And this may sound ridiculously simple as a spiritual exercise. But studies coming out of places like Harvard point out that if a person will spend three or four minutes taking time to identify two or three things that they're thankful for, it will actually change the way they move through the world. And so um, one of my colleagues, Edelin, recently was in the market for a Austin Mini Cooper. And, and so while she was thinking about buying one, she saw Austin Mini Coopers everywhere here in Vancouver. It wasn't like there were more of them on the streets, but her mind was primed to notice them. And so it seemed like they were everywhere. And when we engage in a simple Thanksgiving exercise like the Prayer of Examine, it will start to seem like more good things are coming into our life, even though that may not technically be true. And as we associate these good things with God's love for us, we begin to sense more of the Father's loving yoke across our shoulders. So this really is transformative. And I would recommend this especially for people. I mentioned anxiety and depression before. Daryl Johnson is also a, a mutual friend of, of Mark and in mind, a very respected pastor and teacher of the New Testament here in Vancouver. Daryl has publicly talked about how he has struggled with depression at various times in his life. And uh, he has shared how one of the best things that he does in the morning is to identify 10 or 20 things for which he is thankful. And so if he's feeling lethargic or down, simply taking time to identify 10 or 20 or 25 things for which he is thankful to God for, um, puts him in a different space, gives him a heart of gratitude and worship. And so it's really been transformative for him, and it's been life-changing for me too. Mm, thank you. Ken, I'm going to ask you to speak about one more idea from your book, uh, Survival Guide for the Soul, but I want to set it up by reading the very beginning of the book, chapter one, I'll, I'll read a few of the lines here, and then I'm going to ask a question. Here's how you begin chapter one of Survival Guide for the Soul. As 5 p.m. approaches, I feel a strong desire to remain at the office and answer one or two more emails, hoping to make a little more headway into my inbox. Yet I also feel the pull to go home and be with my family. 
Similarly, if we're married, we may value loyalty to our spouse, but be tempted to fantasize about an affair with someone else. Or we might insist a, a healthy lifestyle is important, but struggle with an irresistible urge to gorge at the dessert buffet. We've heard people say, be true to yourself, but the truth is, is that we have many selves, not a single cohesive unified self. Sometimes we feel as if there is a committee of voices within our heart, each fine for different competing proposals. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Scripture suggests, suggests that we are co complex, multi-dimensional beings filled with a variety of motives and desires. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, in his book, The Lonely Man of Faith, points out that in the first pages of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we are given two different portrayals of Adam. He contends that each of these two Adams corresponds to a different side of our human nature. He simply refers to these as Adam 1 and Adam 2. And that uh, idea frames and keeps appearing throughout the rest of this book. Can you say a bit more about this, uh, at least these two parts of our nature that compete uh, for our attention? Sure, yeah. So Sult Levichik um, points out, I'm just reaching for a Bible on my shelf here, that as we open up the book of Genesis, it seems as though there are two different portrayals of Adam. So uh, as I open up to Genesis 1, there is an Adam that's called by God to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so this Adam is, is ambitious and driven. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see a different persona in Adam. Uh, this Adam is called into a garden to humbly serve it. This is an Adam that walks with God in the cool of the day. This is an Adam that is lonely until Eve appears. And so throughout the book, I write about how within each of us is this striving Adam, this Genesis 1 Adam, that is ambitious and, and driven and wants to get things done. And, and we need that kind of motivation. But also, um, we have this Genesis 2, what I call a soulful Adam, a part of us that longs for deep connection with people and our Creator, and our society right now is putting all the emphasis on striving Adam. So if, for example, uh, you don't keep a Sabbath, if you become a workaholic, you'll probably be rewarded by maybe a pay raise, maybe even a promotion. And so the spotlight is really on this striving Adam. In Survival Guide for the Soul, I am introducing practices that also awaken soulful Adam, our, our longing to connect more deeply with God, with other people, and the practices that help us do that. Some of our listeners uh, are going to have grown up in a particular Christian tradition where some of the stuff you're talking about sounds a little suspicious or even beyond the, beyond the, the veil. Uh, in regard to practices, maybe even in regard to the traditions you draw on, how would you respond to those people? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I do uh, <laughs> cite uh, Catholics uh, in my writings and in my preaching, and uh, some people take issue with that, or if I talk about prayerful meditation, some people wonder, isn't that new age or something that people that are flaky on the right. West Coast do, not people in 
you know, Calgary or at Ambrose or, you know, uh, east of, east of BC. And, and so those are, I think, fair, fair questions. One story comes to mind. When I was a, a kid growing up here in Vancouver on Halloween, I'd go trick or treating. Uh, but I was told that if I received an apple at someone's door to toss it, why? Because there was a rumor going around that there might be apples that were actually embedded with razor blades inside them. Well, uh, my brother, my younger brother, uh, grew up and became a journalist. He worked with the CBC for some time. And at journalism school, my brother learned that the whole rumor that there might be a razor blade embedded in an apple on Halloween was just that, a rumor. That there has never been a single documented case that a child has ever received an apple with a razor blade in it. All those apples that we threw out, right? And so it turns out that the Smarties, with all the food coloring, more more dangerous than the apples on Halloween night. You're rocking my world, friend. <laughs> Paradigm shift here. And I believe that God has revealed his truth and beauty throughout all creation. Now, obviously, our world has been marred and tainted by sin, but God has created human beings in his image. He's created a world which in so many ways is beautiful. And I believe that we can draw on other traditions, bring them under the Lordship of Christ. He can sanctify them, and they can make a powerful difference in our lives. So, for example, most of our friends listening probably wouldn't be opposed to the rite of baptism. The baptism was a pagan rite practiced by uh, the ancient traditions of the first century world, and in Christian's quote, baptized baptism, if I can put it that way. Or the cross, for example. It was seen as this ignominious symbol of death through the most excruciating kind of physical torture and pain and the the worst kind of public shaming. It was just a a terror-evoking symbol. But for the last 2,000 years, because of what was accomplished on the cross through Christ's death, for our sins, we see it as a holy image. And so I believe, and I know that um, Mark could testify to this as well, that we can learn from all different kinds of traditions and cultures. We don't accept everything, but there are elements of beauty and truth that we can learn from, bring under the Lordship of Christ, allow him to sanctify them and to change us and to bless others. Cool. So sabbaticals don't go on forever. uh, And... uh... I assume you'll be getting back at stuff. So as far as you can see, um, what does your next year look like? Um, is, is there another book in the works? What, what, what can we expect next from the, uh, from the work of Ken Shigematsu? Well, here at 10th, we're, we're going to go into an emphasis on, on spiritual renewal. And so uh, simply encouraging one another to turn toward God, you know, from our sins, you know, the Bible calls repentance, and, and to seek a deeper connection with our Creator, with our Father, to be filled with the Spirit. So that's our big emphasis for the coming year, first with our staff team and leadership, and then to the entire community. And then in terms of you, you asked about writing, I've been doing some reflection and, and reading on my sabbatical about the relationship between shame and grace. Uh, many of your uh, friends and listeners may be familiar with the work of Brene Brown. She's a shame researcher, 
has um, given some popular TED Talks, has written some very well-received books. She's a Christian, but she's not writing from a theological ballast per se. And, you know, as an Asian, as someone originally from Japan, I come from a shame and honor culture. And so I want to reflect on that and to see how grace and an encounter with God can heal us of our toxic shame and enable us to live freer, more joy-filled lives. And so that may eventually become a book. Can't wait. Ken, your books, uh, God in My Everything and Survival Guide for the Soul, those are currently available on all internet booksellers. Um, well, if our listeners wanted to find out a bit more about you or your ministry, could you direct them to a website? Yeah, so if people simply Google Tenth Church, T-E-N-T-H Church, and then Vancouver, our, our website will come up. So our, our sermons are, are posted on our website. You can find out more about our faith community. And uh, if people want to be in touch with me directly, I have a Twitter account. It's simply uh, at Ken Shigematsu. I know it sounds like a very long name, at Ken Shigematsu. Be very glad to be in touch with your friends uh, through social media or uh, through our website. Hey, Ken, it was great to have you with us. Uh, we look forward to uh, all this stuff coming forward. It was great having you here on Faith Effects. Thank you for listening to Faith Effects, brought to you by Ambrose University. Join us on November 20th for Our Story in God's Story, part of our one-day workshop series. Learn more online at ambrose.edu events.